You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 78 of Girl Speak Women in Music. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. Today, we're celebrating the upcoming launch of our latest exhibit, Alternative Girls, with a look at the history of women in music. Unfortunately, this history is far too vast to cover in just one podcast. So I've opted to tell you the stories of six incredible women who made music history. First up is Cassia, a Byzantine abbess, poet, composer, and hymnographer. She is one of the first medieval composers whose scores still survive and are able to be interpreted by modern musicians. Cassia was born around 805 in Constantinople into a wealthy family. Reports tell of her exceptional beauty and intelligence, and some chroniclers even claim she was part of the bride show by which Byzantine prince Theophilus sought to find his bride. According to legend, at the bride show, Cassia was approached by Theophilos. He told her, Through a woman come forth the baser things, referring to biblical Eve's sin and the suffering that resulted. Cassia replied, And through a woman come forth the better things, referring to the hope of salvation for Christians attained by the incarnation of Christ through the Virgin Mary. Or at least that's what we think. Theophilus's pride was wounded, and he rejected Cassia despite being in love with her. Around 843, Cassia founded a convent west of Constantinople and became its first abbess. A letter from Theodore the Studite indicates that Cassia likely took the veil through religious zeal or due to aspiration for attaining artistic renown rather than being a wife and mother. Unfortunately for Cassia, the now Emperor Theophilos was against the worship of objects and pictures of religious figures, which Cassia participated in. Cassia and her abbey were repeatedly persecuted by the Emperor, even at one point with Cassia being whipped. In spite of this, she remained an outspoken supporter of the Orthodox faith, and is credited as stating, I hate silence when it is time to speak. Luckily for Cassia, Theophilus's reign did not last long. When his son took the throne, the iconoclastic worship resumed, and peace was restored. For Cassia, that meant time to travel to Italy and Cassos, a trip during which she died between 867 and 890. Cassia left behind more than her legendary courage. She wrote many hymns that are still used today in the Byzantine liturgy, as well as spiritual poetry and music to accompany it. The most famous of these compositions is the Hymn of Cassi Cassiani which is sung every Holy Wednesday. It is a slow, sorrowful, and plaintive song of about 10 to 20 minutes, and requires one of the most demanding pieces of solo Byzantine chant. Unfortunately, the hymn is far too long to listen to here, 
but you can find it sung by many choirs on YouTube. Our next female musician from history lived over 200 years after Cassia. Her name was Hildegard of Bingen. Born in 1098, her family was part of the lower nobility in the service of Count Mengenhard of Sponheim. Hildegard was sickly from birth and reportedly had visions from a very young age. Hildegard later described these visions as instructions from God, though she repeatedly became sick as a result. Because of this, her parents offered her as an oblate to the Benedictine monastery at Dissenbodenberg. By her teenage years, Hildegard was an oblate, or a person who voluntarily affiliated herself with a monastic community, without becoming a nun. Her affiliation led to Hildegard learning to read and write. She spent her days reciting psalms, working in the garden and other handiwork, and tending the sick. It's likely that during this time, Hildegard also learned how to play the ten-string psaltery, which is like a dulcimer, and to write the music for psalms. In 1136, Hildegard was unanimously elected as magistra of the nun community, which was a position like that of an abbess. She soon asked the archbishop to allow the nuns to move to Rupertsburg, where she established her own monastery with 20 nuns. At these communities, Hildegard's written and musical works flourished. Many of these works reflected her personal struggles with her visions and faith. In her first theological text, entitled Know the Ways, Hildegard described her own internal struggle. And I spoke and wrote these things not by the invention of my heart or that of any other person, but as by the secret mysteries of God I heard and received them in the heavenly places. And again I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Cry out, therefore, and write thus. By 1148, Hildegard's works were so well known that she had received approval from the Pope to document her visions as revelations from the Holy Spirit. These works included three volumes of visionary theology, musical morality plays, and one of the largest bodies of letters to survive from the medieval period, with over 400 letters between Hildegard and various popes, emperors, abbots, and abbesses. Hildegard also wrote her views on natural medicine and cures, her invented language, lingua ignota, and various commentaries that have led her to be credited as a scientist. But the part we are concerned with today is her music. At least 69 of her compositions survive today, making hers one of the largest repertoires of medieval composers. One of her most well-known works is the Ordo Virtutum, or Play of the Virtues, composed as early as 1151. Let's listen to a clip from that play, entitled Ofrondens Verja.
Sung in Latin, the lyrics translate as, O blooming branch, you stand upright in your nobility, as breaks the dawn on high. Rejoice now and be glad, and deign to free us, frail and weakened, from the wicked habits of our age. Stretch forth your hand to lift us up aright. Hildegard died in September of 1179, and her fellow sisters claimed to have seen two streams of light appear in the skies and cross over the room where she lay. Now we travel 500 years ahead in time to 1587, when our next musician appears. Her name is Francesca Cassini. Born in Florence, Francesca was taught Latin, Greek, modern languages, literature, and mathematics, in addition to early musical training. Her musical talent was evident early in life, and Francesca made her first public appearance at the age of 13 when she sang at the wedding of Henry IV of France and Maria de' Medici in 1600. The king praised her singing, stating, You are the best singer in all of France. Despite his pleas, Francesca returned to Italy, where she taught, performed, and composed from her father's home. Though Francesca married and had children, she spent the majority of her life composing and performing in the Medici court. By 1614, at the age of just 27, Francesca had become the court's highest-paid musician and was said to exemplify the ideal of female excellence held by Tuscany's de facto regent, Grand Duchess Christina of Lorraine. Unfortunately, very little of Francesca's music has survived. Most of her music was performed in stage comedies, though she did publish a collection of solo songs and soprano duets in 1618. Her songs ranged from intensely moving and harmonious adventures to joyful sacred songs, as well as songs about the joys and perils of romantic love. Francesca's most famous work is a comedy ballet opera performed for the Crown Prince of Poland when he visited Italy. The opera demonstrated Francesca's mastery of musical, theatrical devices, and so pleased the prince that he had it performed in Warsaw in 1628. Today, her work is considered the oldest opera by a female composer. Francesca continued composing and performing until she left the Medici court in May of 1641, when she disappears entirely from the historical record. At this point, we need to stop. Consider the last three women, Cassia, Hildegard, and Francesca. All were from Western cultures and are associated with the very, to put it blatantly, white tradition of music. Their contributions were extraordinary, but this is where, as a historian, I have to point out that our historical record is biased. Many sources available today are from Western cultures and focus on the history of the West. The same is true of music. While researching this episode, I wanted to find female musicians that lived before modern times and in regions other than Europe. Yet, I continually came up empty. That isn't to say that non-European female musicians didn't exist. It simply means that we don't have ready access to stories and records about them. To fill in this gap and make music history more inclusive, we have to wait until the 19th and 20th centuries, primarily the 20th. As the world became more interconnected, the range of women contributing to music increased dramatically and some of these women were truly incredible, both in talent and in their lives. One such woman was Umm Kalfam, born Fatima Ibrahim Asayid al-Biltagi 
I hope I said that right, around 1898 in Egypt. Not much is known about Um's childhood. We do know that she learned to sing by listening to her father teach her older brother, and at a young age, Um showed exceptional singing talent. Her father was an imam at a local mosque, and by the age of 12, Um had memorized the entire Quran and was dressing as a boy to perform in the family ensemble. At the age of 16, Um was noticed by Mohammed Abul Ella, a singer who taught her the classical Arab repertoire, or songs and dances that were regularly performed in public. By her early 20s, Um was in Cairo, where she was learning to play instruments and meeting lots of people in the Egyptian cultural scene. She was eventually introduced to the poet Ahmad Rami, who wrote 137 songs for her and brought French literature into her life. By the early 1930s, these connections had paid off. Um was performing throughout Cairo, including at the Arabic Theater Palace. In 1932, she had reached a claim to fame that led to a major tour of the Middle East, and Um performed in cities like Damascus, Baghdad, Beirut, Tunis, and Tripoli. She quickly became one of the most famous and popular Arab singers, known for her great control of her voice and emotional impact. Many of her performances were open to the general public, and she eventually sang for the inaugural broadcast of Radio Cairo, the state radio station, in 1934. She would go on to perform in live broadcasting and musical movies. Here's a clip from one of her songs. King Farouk I of Egypt, who decorated her with the highest level of orders, a decoration reserved exclusively to members of the royal family and politicians. She would go on to continue performing after the Bloodless Revolution of 1952, which ended monastic rule and British occupation in Egypt and established the Republic of Egypt. She also became involved in lots of charity work. Her musical influence would extend beyond the Arab world, influencing singers such as Bob Dylan, Maria Callas, and Robert Plant. She died in 1975 at the age of 76, and her funeral was a national event with four million Egyptians lining the streets to watch her procession. Even after death, Um continues to be a success. Her records continue to sell about a million copies a year. Another incredible female musician of the time was Carmen Miranda, Born Maria de Carmo Miranda da Cunha in P Portugal in 1909, her family immigrated to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil when she was just 10 months old. In 
Carmen grew up with her father's love for singing and dancing, though her father did not support her interest in entering show business. At the age of 14, Carmen went to work in a tie shop after her sister contracted tuberculosis, and eventually Carmen opened her own hat business. It wasn't until the 1920s that Carmen was discovered and recorded her first album. Within a year of her first recordings, Carmen became a singing star in Brazil. The increasing commercialization of music at this time skyrocketed Carmen into pop icon status, leading to her contract with RCA Victor Records, making her the first contracted radio singer in Brazilian history. Here's a clip of one of her songs released in 1939, he immediately offered her a contract to perform in the streets of Paris, but Carmen refused unless he also hired her band, because Carmen knew that New York musicians couldn't authentically create the sounds of Brazil. Eventually, they reached a compromise, and Schubert hired six of her band members. In 1939, Carmen departed Brazil for New York. She received good reviews for her part in the streets of Paris, with critic Brooks Atkinson stating that she made the show. In the New York Daily Mirror, Carmen was portrayed as a new star and credited with saving Broadway from the slump in ticket sales caused by the New York World's Fair. Her fame grew quickly, even leading to an invitation to dine with President Roosevelt at the White House. News of her Broadway stardom, stardom reached Hollywood, and by 1940 she had starred in Down Argentine Way, which grossed $2 million at the box office. Carmen continued to perform on Broadway and record albums for Decca Records until her contract with Schubert ended in 1942. Carmen moved on to contract with 20th Century Fox, spending the years of World War II as a goodwill ambassador and promoter of Pan-American culture in film and music. Now called the Brazilian bombshell, Carmen's image became an increasingly Latin Americanized one rather than strictly Brazilian, leading to harsh criticism from her home country. However, Carmen still experienced amazing success for her films and performances, leading her to become one of the first Latinas to leave her hand and footprints in the sidewalk of, Gra sidewalk of Grauman's Chinese Theater. By 1945, Carmen was Hollywood's highest paid entertainer and top female taxpayer in the United States, earning more than $200,000 a year. That's nearly $2.2 million a year today. Unfortunately for Carmen, the end of the war signaled the decline of her career. She continued to record songs and went on to perform on radio several times. Her last film was Scared Stiff in 1953, 
where she appeared alongside Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. That same year, Carmen collapsed from exhaustion while performing in Cincinnati, Ohio. She was admitted to Leroy Sanitarium, undergoing electroshock therapy. Little is known about Carmen's private life, though there is speculation that her marriage to David Sebastian, which happened in 1947, was very abusive. Carmen's last years were full of sickness, heavy smoking, and alcohol, a trio that inevitably contributed to her early death in August of 1955 of a heart attack. She was 46. A contemporary of Carmen and Um was American jazz musician and singer-songwriter Billie Holiday. Nicknamed Lady Day, Billie is one of the most famous American jazz musicians of all time. She was born in 1915 in Philadelphia, the daughter of an unmarried teenage couple. Her father abandoned the family early in life, and she and her mother eventually lived with her aunt in Baltimore. Her mother worked a variety of odd jobs, leaving Billy to be raised by extended family. All this turbulence led to a rough life for Billy. She frequently skipped school and was brought before juvenile court and sentenced to nine months at a Catholic reform school. By 1925, Billy had been released and was working at her mother's restaurant, the East Side Grill. A year later, Billy entered protective custody after a neighbor attempted to rape her. Her teenage years saw no signs of slowing her turbulent life, with frequent moves and more time in prison. Around 1926, Billy began singing in nightclubs in Harlem. By 1935, she had recorded two songs and signed with Brunswick Re Records to record current pop tunes in the new swing style. She was given free reign to improvise, and her first recordings gained success, leading her to record with some of the swing era's finest musicians. She also began turning the pop tunes into jazz classics. Unfortunately, during this time, Billie wasn't given any royalties for her work, instead being paid a flat fee. She worked brief stints, notably with Count Basie performing one-nighters in clubs throughout the United States. After these stints, she was hired by Artie Shaw, making her the first black woman to work with a white orchestra, and the first time a black female singer was employed full-time and toured the segregated U.S. South with a white band leader. Despite racial tension and various incidents, Billie continued to be a success, so much that she was broadcast on New York City's radio station, WABC. She left Shaw's band in 1938, following an incident where she was asked to use the service elevator rather than ride with the white passengers. Billie achieved mainstream success in the late 1930s and 1940s, recording for Columbia and Commodore Records. Most notably, she recorded the song Strange Fruit, based on a poem about lynching that reminded her of her father, who had died of a fatal lung disorder after being denied medical treatment due to his race. She said of the song, it reminds me of how Pop died, but I have to keep singing it, not only because people ask for it, but because 20 years after Pop died, the things that killed him are still happening in the South. By the mid-1940s, Billy was a mainstream success and had started starring in films, notably New Orleans opposite Louis Armstrong and Woody Herman. Unfortunately, Billy had also become addicted to heroin, for which she was arrested in 1947. She was released from prison a year later for good behavior, and played a sold-out comeback concert at Carnegie Hall on March 27, 1948. Yet Billy's drug habits didn't stop, 
and although she continued to record and perform music, it eventually caught up with her. Her health deteriorated rapidly during the 1950s, during which she also toured Europe, sang several times at Carnegie Hall, performed on television, and published an autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues. In 1959, she made her final recordings and television appearances. She was diagnosed with both liver and heart disease, for which she was admitted to Metropolitan Hospital in New York. While receiving treatment, Billy was arrested for drug possession and placed under police guard. She died on July 17, 1959, of heart failure, broke and in handcuffs. She was buried at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. Despite her tragic end, Billy is remembered today as one of the greatest jazz vocalists ever. As Frank Sinatra stated in 1958, with few exceptions, Every major pop singer in the U.S. during her generation has been touched in some way by her genius. It is Billie Holiday who was, and still remains, the greatest single musical influence on me. Lady Day is unquestionably the most important influence on American popular singing in the last 20 years. For more on the history of women in music, check out Spotify's playlist, 1200 Years of Women Composers, from Hildegard to Higdon. The playlist contains over 900 pieces of music composed by women, beginning in medieval times with Byzantine abbess, poet, and composer Cassia, and ending with some of the most incredible female composers alive today, like Helena Tulva and Masato Moshizuki. Also be sure to visit our website in March for the launch of Alternative Girls. Curated by junior girl Sarah Rain, this exhibition looks at the impact women have had on current and past music scenes. Using music, we explore the women who made impacts both on and off stage in the industry, including contributions from singers, sound technicians, promoters, CEOs, and others, who show us how the experiences of girls and women have influenced one of the most powerful cultural products, music. Stay tuned for the launch of Alternative Girls on our website in early March. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on March 15th, where we join Emily Chandler to explore memoirs of girlhood. Also, please help to support future production of Girl Speak by visiting our website at www.girlmuseum.org and clicking donate. Thank you and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, Please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.